This is Ye Old Dragons Library, the storytelling podcast. Each week, you'll hear a portion of a work in progress and have a chance to interact with the author and other readers on the author's blog, posing questions, answering questions from the author, and hopefully having a lot of fun. Are you ready? Let's begin. Episode 14 So, Fang survived being bitten by Morris the Vampire. But at what cost? What does it mean for him to be only partially turned into a vampire? All Ash can do is face each problem and puzzle as it appears. One benefit, though, has already showed up. Fang is a great hunter. She won't go hungry. Two hours later, Ash leaned back against a convenient fallen log, toasty warm from a massive horseshoe-shaped fire, and her stomach full of roasted venison. Fang had brought back a ten-point buck. That was the huge, lumpy, creeping, dragging, noisy thing. The deer was six times his size, and it had taken some doing to drag the carcass from wherever he had wrestled it to the ground before biting on its neck to catch up with her on the road. But Fang had done it. He was inordinately proud of himself, and even more proud every time she thanked him. The ring provided enough sparks to build the fire. Under his direction, Ash created her campsite, surrounding herself with fire on three sides, and plenty of sharpened sticks at the ready to set on fire and to defend herself, if Morris should catch up with her. Then, as the fire grew, she butchered the deer. What was left of it, anyway? Fang contented himself with the rib cage and all the internal organs. He did have a passion for red and juicy and messy, and being half-vampire now certainly brought that out. Then again, being half-vampire had made it possible for him to take down the buck and bring it to her. Ash was quite happy with the hindquarters. She intended to roast as much as she could after she had eaten her fill, and contrived some way to carry much of the meat with her. She had learned the hard way that depending on finding generous people or comfortable inns was not a wise plan to follow. When her stomach was so full, it ached nearly as much as it had when it was empty, Ash forced herself to her feet and gathered more wood. She needed to keep that fire going. While it would draw people to her, and possibly Morris, and hundreds of night insects, it would also protect her. And there was something deliciously decadent about being warm and being surrounded by light after those interminable days in the cool and damp and dark underground. No matter how beautiful the lights and colors of the cave growths, she couldn't imagine herself enduring an entire lifetime, an extended lifetime, as a nightborn. Please, Athiosius, she prayed, keep him away from me. Discourage him. To Ash's dismay, she fell asleep. She remembered looking at Fang and finding something humorous and disturbing in the sight of him curled up in the rib cage of the decimated, devoured buck, fast asleep, purring in contentment. Then the next thing she knew, she lay curled up in her cloak, coughing as the smoke from her dying fire surrounded her, the currents of morning breezes pushing it down to the ground. Nothing had touched the makeshift racks she had placed over the coals to cook and partially dry long slabs of venison. No one had entered her campsite to attack her or steal her few possessions. Morris hadn't appeared from the darkness to woo her, 
with a bloody wrist and his fangs growing long. Thank you, she prayed. She nearly took back that repeating litany of thanks when she pushed herself upright and discovered that sleeping on the forest floor wasn't quite as comfortable as the stories of adventures inferred. Fang was nowhere to be seen. Well, at least something was constant in her life. Ash set about washing, then took a long drink. She wondered how long she could keep drinking the water that tasted as fresh as it had been when she filled the flask. Sooner or later, even its enormous capacity had to run out, after all. When she found a spring or a well, she had to make a point of adding water to the flask. When she ran out of venison, she would have to rely on water to fill her stomach, if by that time she hadn't come among people again and found some way to earn her keep. After all, what were her chances of constantly running into magical people who would give her help out of the goodness of their souls, or in exchange for information or help? That was the way it was in adventure tales, but Ash knew better than to expect that to be the way things were done in the rest of the world. After all, the rest of the world had people like Lord Winston and Lathia, as well as Lady Charlotte and Lady Lena. The rest of the world had Captain Creakland and the Magistrate, and Morris and his tribe of Nightborn, and greedy fools who didn't pay attention or consider magical rules and problems, such as Branley and Alora and their sons. Ash allowed herself a piece of meat the size of her open palm for her breakfast. She packed away the rest and the remains of her extra shirt, mixed with handfuls of several kinds of leafy herbs that the ring pointed out to her. They would fight decay and keep away insects that would want to share her food. Ash found some satisfaction in the bulges in her pack and told herself she didn't mind the extra weight. She would walk it off and eat it off and maybe build some muscles along the way. She had to get stronger, although she despaired of ever being as visibly strong as Lady Lena and the other maiden warriors she had seen. Still, the better able she was to defend herself, the safer she would feel. Under the ring's direction, she scattered the smoldering coals of her fire, then buried them in dirt. Some of the things he said about forestry practices and burning off dead wood and controlled burns went right over her head. She tried to listen, but didn't even consider asking questions. It was nice to have the ring talking to her as she worked, cleaning up her campsite and doing the best she could to make it appear that no one had spent the night there. Except for the remains of the deer, of course. Insects and smaller animals that appreciated raw meat were already moving in, or hovering in the shadows, waiting for her to leave, to judge by the sounds. Ash trusted that most of the evidence would be cleared away soon, so anyone who stepped a bow shot off the road into the forest wouldn't realize what had happened here. That's going to be the way of it for a while, isn't it, she said, as she tied her cloak into a neat bundle and attached it to the back of her pack, sliding by in the shadows, staying unnoticed as much as possible, hoping people don't realize I'm there, at least until Fang is cured. Perhaps, the ring said. Perhaps? She laughed softly, softer than she would have in the castle. Already, this life of stealth and watchfulness was affecting her. You are growing and changing. You were growing and changing before that selfish snot attacked you and set you on this path. Who knows what path you would have followed if she hadn't come along? You can't blame all your changes on Fang. True. And do you have any idea where he is? Chirp startled her. She turned and saw Fang standing halfway between the campsite and the road. He waved his sleeve-shielded ears at her and rose up as high as he could on his hind legs. 
Ash was pleased to note that he had not only gotten into the adjusted shirt without her help, but he seemed to have groomed himself and removed all that blood that had soaked into his fur during his rather messy, loud feasting on the fresh deer carcass. Well, shall we get going? Fang chirped and bounced up high. He turned a somersault in midair, startling a laugh out of her. For Fang's comfort, Ash kept them to the less-traveled lanes, and even opted for cutting through small woods and skirting around farms and villages. Her first reason for choosing a route was to let him move in shadows as much as possible. Then, after that, staying out of the sight of people as much as possible. The sight of a rather large bunny, with rather long teeth and an unusually large gap between them was bad enough but seeing one bounding along wrapped in an oversized shirt was sure to garner them attention neither of them wanted. It was simply easier to stay in the shadows. Besides, avoiding people gave them freedom to forage for their food and sleep under hedges without anyone accusing her of being a thief or runaway servant or apprentice, and wouldn't let anyone get close enough to really look at her and realize she was a girl disguised as a boy. When it was impossible to avoid places with too much traffic for comfort, they found a place to sleep during the day and started walking at sunset, until they had either passed by that troublesome area full of people, or they found another safe hole to hide in. Fang was quite good at finding all sorts of edible roots and berries and herbs that Ash learned to enjoy raw. He found great delight in hunting, and she had some difficulty convincing him to avoid larger prey, such as that deer the first night when they were within earshot of people who might hear the struggle and come to investigate. She didn't mind his growing taste for bloody food when they were far enough away from people that she could cook enough provisions for several days. At least Fang had proven to be a rather fastidious creature, taking great care to clean himself of all evidence of his messy meals. And all the while, the ring taught her about plants and animals that they passed, and the geography of the kingdom they walked through, even tidbits of history— if he had had access to documents relating such information. Ash learned more than she had ever hoped to about herbs and healing practices and the history of the surrounding kingdoms. And magic. It was all theoretical, of course, but the ring taught her the signs to look for, of magic being practiced nearby, of magical objects performing their tasks, of malfunctioning spells that either needed to be avoided or dealt with. And most important, Signs of whatever inborn magic she carried in her blood and bones finally awakening and revealing itself. Ash didn't look forward to the day when some troublesome magical talent or potential grew strong enough that she needed to find a teacher. What mattered to her was performing the tasks Camwell assigned to her and being free of his oversight. He hadn't checked in on her yet. The ring had promised to tell her when the Justiciar opened up the link between them, to try to observe through her senses and track her progress and location. She was relieved to have gone through two caverns and crossed two borders, and already learned the list of rankings of magic users. Her quest was already halfway completed. Hopefully, Lathia would be so troublesome and uncooperative, he would focus all his attention on her, prodding her to get moving, maybe even sending questions for her to answer constantly. The ring admitted that the other ring liked the idea of Lathia finally realizing that she wasn't alone, that someone was always watching, but not to attend to her every need. The more Lathia took up Justiciar Camwell's energy in oversight, the less attention he would spend on Ash, although she knew the Day of Reckoning would catch up with her eventually. How do you think he'll react 
When you tell him about the bloodweed and the soldiers and being forced into that cavern and walking with Morris and learning so much true lore of vampires, she mused one sleepy warm afternoon. The ring had helped her find a rather comfortable perch in an oak, three stories above ground, among foliage so thick she couldn't see the people who passed by unless they walked directly under the tree. Ash had fashioned a sling with her cloak so she could lie down and sleep without fear of falling. Right now, she sprawled out quite comfortably along a massive limb twice as wide as her torso. When her eyes grew heavy enough, she would have to move into that sling, or all her caution would be for naught. Fang was some distance away, terrorizing any small prey animals he might see. He wouldn't catch and kill unless he was hungry, but he did find great joy in practicing his stealth skills, or just bounding high enough to drop down dozens of paces away and sending creatures scattering in all directions in terror. I fear he will insist you spend time with him, narrating each step of your journey, submitting to thousands of questions for details. While his home is quite comfortable, and you will have the distinction of having your name listed in several books, depending on how he records the information, the ring sighed. What's wrong? Well, he is an inveterate traveler. With you to do the physical work while he remains comfortably gluttonously at home, you're likely to be forced to travel from one castle and estate and inn to another, until he grows bored with your observations or whatever inhibits you. Traveling with and for the justiciar is nothing like this freedom and simplicity you're enjoying now. Ash nearly snorted aloud. Enjoy? She wouldn't call living out in the open, getting drenched by showers despite her cloak or whatever shelter she had found, being chilled on unusually frosty nights, and baking during the day and constantly walking, well, except for times like this, of course, and constantly wondering when she would run out of food and have to either beg or find someone who'd pay her in food or steal. Well, come to think of it, yes, she did rather enjoy it, despite the discomfort and bouts of hunger and thirst and not being able to wash regularly. She felt stronger, certainly, from all the walking and climbing. The ring's constant teaching had certainly expanded her education. She had thought the hundred or so books in Castle Fairhold's library was an amazing luxury and privilege, and she had a valuable education. Now she knew better. What would be the difference, she asked, when she realized the ring was waiting for her to respond, with something more than a muffled snort. You'd be constantly in attendance on him. Depending on his mood, he'll either keep you disguised as a boy perhaps as an apprentice clerk, and entertain himself waiting for someone to realize there's something not quite right about you. Or he'll dress you up and make you look like a bit of fluff, just to astonish people when you recite and prove your extraordinary education. Just the fact that you can read and write puts you equal to, and even a few levels above, many in the nobility. Far too many depend on their clerks and seneschals to handle all the records and accounts for them. And... He could give in to a moment of whimsy and what he considers generosity and make you his ward and then marry you off for his own political gain. Oh, she felt quite wide awake now compared to just a few moments ago when she had let her drowsy thoughts wander. Ash regretted bringing up the topic, yet at the same time she knew she should be grateful she had. How could she defend herself if she didn't know what threats awaited her at the end of this quest? A snort escaped her, a resolution and a plan she had been considering, without really being sure what she was toying with at the back of her mind, had just moved to the front of her mind and solidified. Please, 
Don't take this the wrong way, Ring, my friend, but I hope I'm far away from the Justiciar when my quest is fulfilled. Quite understandable. And if you aren't magically taken away from me, but I'm able to take you off my finger, I will, just so he can't track me any longer. We can still talk if we're together, even if I'm not wearing you. The possibility has never been tested, usually because my previous wearers are all relieved to be free of me. I'd like to find a way to keep you with me, she said, and not just to spite the Justiciar. I want to make it impossible for him to find me without having to lose you. And if that means being separated from you, or not being able to talk to you for long periods of time, or ever, can we still talk if, say, I'm wearing you on a chain around my neck? I'm not really sure how much contact we need. I was able to talk to Blaz, and he wasn't wearing me. Blaz has magic. So do you, my lady Ashlyn. She snorted and sat up, wriggling around so she was leaning against the trunk of the tree. I wish you wouldn't call me that. Looking at me, I'm certainly no lady. And considering the lives ladies have to live, I much prefer this. There is more to being a lady than wearing fine dresses and jewelry and living as if every moment is about to be captured in a sketch or portrait, or, Athiosius protect us, a tapestry for the ages to admire and learn from. That earned a chuckle from her, quickly muffled behind her hand. It was one thing to talk in low tones, but it was another to laugh. That was a sound that people walking on the road a bow shot away from her might hear. Ash knew it was risky to talk aloud with the ring, when she could certainly speak to him in her thoughts but doing so gave her a headache after a time. She thought it rather strained something in her brain. What you need, the ring continued, after a moment of listening, waiting silence, when Ash assured herself no one was on the road, is to earn enough power you can live as you please. What kind of power? She shook her head. I think I know. There is wealth, and there is military might, and there is land and political power, and the fear you generate in other people. Any of that will take me so long, I'll be an old woman, and what's the use then? I won't be able to enjoy traveling and adventuring like this. Of course, people will just ignore me then. They'll just say I'm another crazy old woman. They'll lock me up, or they'll let me run loose and use me to frighten their children into behaving and doing the chores. Or there is magic, the ring said. Ash held her breath, not quite sure why. Use this quest to find what your magic is. Grow it. Make it useful. Put yourself in a position where people will want your help and be grateful and protect you. Respect that comes from admiration and gratitude is far more potent than respect grounded in fear. Easier said than done, she said on a sigh, echoing something she had heard Lady Charlotte and Lady Beatrice say to each other many times. If something is easy... You don't appreciate it when you achieve it. The ring tightened slightly around her finger. He had done it several times during conversations like this, and Ash had decided to equate it with a friendly arm draped around her shoulders to encourage her. Don't you worry, my lady. We will solve this riddle together. And if Arthiosius blesses us, you will be powerful enough, or at least far enough away when you complete the quest, we can stay together, and Camwell will never be able to retrieve either of us. That was such an encouraging thought. Ash relaxed and entertained herself with images of the Justiciar's frustration until she was able to stretch out in the sling of her cloak and get some sleep. Such conversations filled the quiet hours in the midday heat on days when Ash needed to hide and couldn't sleep. 
she found them rather enlightening, opening up places in her mind and soul she hadn't suspected were there. Would she have ever traveled such mental pathways if she had stayed in Castle Fairhold? Likely not, especially as her body continued to betray her and make it harder to masquerade as a boy. Several days after that conversation, she nearly laughed aloud at the realization that maybe, just maybe, she should be grateful for Lathia's innocent games of tormenting her inferiors and trying to turn them into playmates for her increasingly sensual games. After all, otherwise she wouldn't be traveling in kingdoms she had only read about, accompanied by a spirit ring and a partially transformed vampire bunny on a quest somewhat like those she read about in books. Two afternoons later, Ash woke from a nap under a thick canopy of ivy, with rain dripping through to touch her face and hearing two voices in her head. One was the ring, the other was a tired baritone. Ah, she awakens, the baritone said aloud. Good, I dislike walking in the rain, and we have just enough time to get to my cottage before it turns into a real drencher. Something tapped Ash's leg. She fought down an urge to scold the ring for not awakening her when this stranger happened on them. How had he found them? Muffling a moan, she discovered several bruised spots on her back where she had slid over in her sleep to rest on several hard things. She tugged her hood down enough to see a long, pale wooden staff tapping her leg. She followed the staff up to a thin, elderly man who smiled at her and nodded. Even in the shadows of her ivy shelter, she could see the thick, milky color of his eyes. No pupils whatsoever. He was blind. "'You're a seer?' she said, her voice cracking a little as she sat up. "'Cecil, at your service, Lady Ashlyn.' A grin turned his deeply tanned face into a nest of wrinkles and crevices, like a walnut. "'Ring!' The ring laughed. "'Go with him. You need what he can give you. What do I need besides a bath?' and maybe a nice thick slab of bread and butter. Ash had meant to be flippant, but the thought of fresh bread after nearly a month of nothing but herbs and roots and wild-caught meat, well, it made her mouth water and her stomach twist, loudly. "'What do you say to all the books you care to read?' Cecil said. Leaning on his staff, he stood up. "'Oh, sorry,' he hurried to say, as his injudicious movements jarred the ivy overhead, sending a cascade of drops down on them both." Then he laughed and tipped his head back. His hood slid down, revealing his balding head and fluffy white fringe of hair. Despite his wrinkles and stooped shoulders and the creak in his voice, he seemed so much like a mischievous little boy, Ash couldn't be upset at the drenching. Besides, that was the magic word. Books. If the ring trusted Cecil, then she knew she could, too. Unless Cecil was one of those powerful seers who could not only see into the future and into the minds of people— but he could change their thoughts, their memories, and make them act the exact opposite of what they should do and be? Where's Fang, she said instead, to get her thoughts away from that troubling idea. If Cecil was a danger, manipulating the ring against her, she didn't want him to suspect. If Cecil was exactly as he appeared, and the ring was right to trust him, she didn't want to insult the man. Especially if she had a chance to read books for a few days, and sleep in a real bed, and maybe eat bread. He did say he lived in a cottage, didn't he? I suspect he's halfway down my row of beets and getting quite messy, Cecil said. He seemed quite excited when I pointed out all the lovely vegetables and fruits in my garden that were red or a lovely red-purple. The ring and I sent him on ahead so you could sleep as long as you needed. Thank you. 
Ash wasn't sure how she should feel about that. While she appreciated others looking out for her comfort, it felt odd. They walked in silence. She kept stealing glimpses of Cecil, half expecting to find that the milky haze no longer obscured his eyes, because he walked without swinging his staff from side to side and ahead to feel the meandering forest path. No, he still looked blind, yet he didn't move like any blind people she had seen. Granted, most of them seemed content to huddle on a bench in some public place, stretching out their hands toward any sounds of people passing by, begging for charity and pity. Cecil walked with his head up and shoulders back, with confidence, and she couldn't envision him wanting charity. She could envision him laughing at pity, maybe scolding anyone who would treat him like he was blind and helpless. The assessment made no sense to her, when she thought about it, because she had just met the man only fifteen minutes ago. Ash doubted that being told he was a seer, and hearing his voice in her head, talking with a ring, could have told her that much about the man. Maybe he was as she had feared, one of those seers who could influence people's thoughts. If so, what kind of trouble was she walking into? If you're blind, why do you have books, she asked, to change the course of her thoughts, just in case he could peer into them. And that's the end of episode 14. So, do you think Ash is smart to trust Cecil? Or should she run away as soon as she gets a hold of Fang? Do you think it's possible for the ring to be fooled, so he gives Ash wrong advice? Are they in trouble? Or is her luck turning for the better? And why exactly would a seer who is blind have books? Come back next week and we'll find out.